Well, the passage we're reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense." which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Uh, Airports can be one of the busiest places in the world. There's nothing quite like being in an airport during that peak hour rush. Um, And Heathrow Airport is one of the busiest airports in the world. At Heathrow Airport, there are 72,000 employees. That's staggering, isn't it? Just just at Heathrow Airport, 72,000 people employed there. They deal with more than 1,200 flights every day. That's around 200,000 passengers that they're moving in and out of the airport every day. There are 500 check-in desks at uh, Heathrow Airport. Uh, when you see things from the check-in desks, it can look pretty chaotic. I mean, people heading in every direction, queuing at counters, bags flying off in all direction on belts that are taking them away to the mysterious places in the bowels of the airport. Uh, when you look on the tarmac, things can also look pretty equally chaotic. There's planes everywhere, refuelling trucks, baggage trucks, catering trucks, heading in all different directions. There doesn't seem to be any order to what's happening. It looks like the whole thing is completely out of control. 
Now, I'm mindful that we have a man here today who used to work in a control tower, but I understand that when you see things from the control tower in the airport, it's a very different view. The people in there, it's all quite calm and quiet, and they know what's going on. Uh, They're, in fact, controlling all of the things that are going on in the airport. Uh, You'd be able to see instructions being given, planes going to exactly where they've been told to go, uh, vehicles heading in the right direction, everything happening just as it was intended to. When you see things from down below, it can look like chaos. But when you see things from the tower, well, things are happening just the way that they were supposed to. Things are completely under control. Now, this book of Revelation was written, as we've seen, to seven churches in the province of Asia and seven churches who are beginning to experience serious persecution just because of their faith in Jesus. To them, things may have started to look like they were completely out of control. They've got Roman emperors who are erecting statues and demanding that you bow down and worship them as God and that there is no other God that you're allowed to worship. People are suffering, even dying, just because they believe in Jesus. Well, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, John is taken up into the control tower. He's taken up into heaven and he's given a very different view of what's actually happening. The vision that we have in chapter 4 and 5 is really the first full-blown vision. We had a vision of Jesus in chapter 1, but it was fairly short and, and not as detailed as what we have here in chapters 4 and 5. This is the first big picture that is being painted for us, so we need to look through the details and see what it is that John is wanting to pre- present to us. In some ways, what we have in chapters 4 and 5 is the most important vision in the whole book. It's the vision that you need to keep in mind when you look at all of the other visions that we see in this book. John is given this glimpse into the control tower in heaven. So what does John see when he gets up, when he gets to heaven, when he sees inside this control tower? You see it there at the beginning of chapter 4. We're told that a door is open to heaven and John is invited to come and see. And John says that he sees someone sitting on a throne. Now, we're not directly told who this is at first, but it doesn't take terribly long to figure it out. This is God on the throne in heaven. But what's truly remarkable when you read through this account is that there's almost no description of what God looks like. All John says is that he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, two kind of reddish coloured stones. That's all we're told about the one sitting on the throne. We actually glean who this is from all of the other things that are happening around the throne. We actually figure out who is on the throne because of everything else that's happening. As we move out from the throne, we're told that there are 24 more thrones that are set in a circle around this main throne in the centre of heaven. These are not thrones that are in competition with God. These rulers are clearly subservient to God. Their thrones are facing towards that main throne in the centre. And we're told that these thrones belong to the 24 elders. Well, who are the 24 elders? Well, we're not told. And remember the little rule that we had before? If you're not told who, what things represent, it's probably a detail that you don't really need to know. 
Some people think that the 24 elders probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, and the 12 disciples, God's people in the pages of the New Testament. That's kind of nice and neat, but the passage doesn't actually say that. And we need to remember, step back and look at the big picture. Don't get confused on a small detail. And the big picture, well, it's glaringly obvious, isn't it? Whoever these people are, they're placing their crown in front of God. They're acknowledging that even though they may have some role, some leadership, it's God who runs everything. And their thrones are facing towards his throne because his throne is the one that counts, not theirs. It's not just a visual thing that John sees. We're told, verse 5, that he hears rumbling and peals of thunder. I'm sure we're supposed to think back to Moses going up onto Mount Sinai who also heard those rumblings and peals of thunder as he goes to meet with God. And then there's more. We have the four living creatures, partway through verse number 6. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, even though John describes that, I cannot picture what that must have looked like. I mean, creatures with six wings, eyes all over them, it's just beyond my imagining. It seems to be a bit of a mixture of what Isaiah sees when he glimpses up into seven, in, in, uh, into heaven in Isaiah chapter 6 and what Ezekiel sees in the opening vision of the book of Ezekiel, this throne room of God. Now, we may not be told exactly what they represent, but we know that they are around the throne of God, they are heavenly beings, and they are singing God's praises. We need to take care that we don't do more with the vision than we're supposed to. The point is really, really clear. Chapter 7 is mind-numbingly simple. God rules over everything. Here he is sitting on the throne and everyone, the 12 elders, the living creatures are all singing God's praises because God rules over everything. This is the God who created everything, who brought everything into being by his his decision, his will. And go back right to the very beginning, Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1. Look at what John was told. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. We're really entering into the vision that John will see here in Revelation as we start chapter 4. And the the writer is saying, come and let me show you what's going to happen. And the first and the most important thing to understand about what happens in our world is that God rules over everything. He's on the throne. Everyone is acknowledging that God is on the throne. And then you come to chapter 5. Now, if chapter 4 is absolutely everything that you're expecting to see in heaven, which I think it pretty much is, this grand picture of God on the throne and everyone acknowledging that he's God, 
Well, chapter 5 is filled with things that you're not expecting. I'm a big sports fan. It doesn't really matter what the sport is. Anything but AFL I can watch, pretty much. Um, uh, and I, I remember watching, this is going back a couple of years ago now, but it was during the Baseball World Series in 2002. And what happened was that there were uh, batsmen were on two of the bases, if you know about baseball, and a batsman uh, belted the ball out into the midfield. And the two guys who were on the bases were charging for home, and the guy who'd hit the ball was obviously trying to make his way around the bases as well. As the, as the first of the, of the uh, men on base came into home plate, he found this. A three-year-old boy standing on home plate. Uh, it, it was the son of one of the players in the team, and he was kind of, you know, he was the bat boy. He, he, he was, and no one, because the game had become so intense, everyone had forgotten to keep an eye out for the bat boy. And he wandered out into the middle of the field. Everyone had watched the ball go out into the midfield. They watched the fielders pick it up and hurl it back in. They saw these men running for home plate, and then everyone looked at home plate. And there was a three-year-old standing there. Uh, fortunately, this uh, the, the first guy through realised what was happening and grabbed the child and got him out of harm's way. But every single person in the stadium, I mean, they must have just gasped for breath as they saw this three-year-old run out there. And the millions of people who were watching it on television could not believe their eyes. Game five in the World Series and there is a three-year-old standing on home plate. Well, can I say, that's a little bit of what we actually get here in Revelation chapter 5. What in the world are we seeing? Chapter 5 is full of surprises. It starts off okay. Have a look at chapter 5. We heard it read to us. Uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, you're probably wondering, what's the scroll supposed to represent? And again, we're not told in the passage, but it becomes pretty clear that this is God's plans and purposes that are sealed up in this scroll. And as the scroll is opened and unfolded, then God's plans and purposes are put into effect. Um, there's scrolls that we read about in the book of Ezekiel and also in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel chapter 2 and Daniel 12. We're told about scrolls there that seem to represent the same thing. This is God's plan, particularly God's plan of salvation. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, so far, so good. That's kind of probably what you're expecting to see in heaven. God sitting on the throne, holding a scroll and saying, who is worthy to open this scroll? Again, it seems to be some Old Testament allusions that we're actually getting here. But breaking the seals is going to be enacting the plan. But the surprise comes in verse number three. No one in heaven or on earth and under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. God is holding a scroll and they can't find anyone to open it. Now, I mean, we're talking about heaven here. We're talking about the God who created everything. What, what's happening here? Why can't someone be found who can open this scroll? Why isn't there someone who is worthy to be able to do this? And look at what it says in verse 4. John realises the gravity of the whole situation. He says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. There's something in heaven that can't be done. And then the elder speaks to John, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. 
See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now again, jam-packed with Old Testament ideas, this passage, the idea of the line of Judah, the descendant of King David, the one who's going to rule on David's throne, the one who's going to bring in the kingdom, he's the one who can bring about the victory. And John turns, fully expecting to see a lion, but instead he sees this. And it's not just a lamb, I, I felt for just discretion's sake, I I wouldn't put a bloodied lamb up there, but that's what John saw. Not just a lamb, but a lamb that looked like it had been slain, standing on the throne in heaven. Now, you've got to be asking yourself, what in the world is that doing there? I'm expecting to see a lion on the throne, not, not a lamb and not a slain lamb. That is not what you're expecting to see. But then comes the next surprise, The lamb takes the scroll from God. And as soon as he does, the elders and the living creatures fall down before the lamb and worship him. They worship this slain lamb. And they start singing a new song in heaven. That he is worthy to open the seals on the scroll. And why is he worthy? Well, it says it in the passage there. Because by his death, he purchased men for God. A death that brings people from every tribe and every nation. A death that enables them to be a part of this kingdom of priests. And it's not just the elders and the living creatures who start worshipping. We're now told that on top of that, there are tens of thousands of angels who are singing. And eventually, by the end of the chapter, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the water, is they're all singing the praises of the Lamb. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That the image that symbolises Christianity is the death of Jesus on the cross. If you want to pick the one picture that shows what Christianity is about, it's a slain lamb. Not at all out of place in heaven. And in fact, it's perfectly appropriate that everyone should be singing the praises of that slain lamb. Well, the chapter closes with all eyes on God and on Jesus that they are both worthy of being praised. There's this enormous crowd and all eyes are where they ought to be, on God and on Jesus. Every creature in heaven and earth singing their praises just as they should. Now let me take you down a very, very brief side road. Find chapter 5 and look at verse number 7 and 8 got this unusual little thing that we're told here and it comes up again later on in Revelation as well. He came, that is the lamb, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now again, here's the little rule, isn't it? If you need to know what something symbolises, the passage will tell you. So here are these golden bowls of incense. And what do they represent? Well, they represent the prayers of the saints. 
Can I just suggest a couple of things that actually come out of that that might be helpful for us? It's very easy to look at this vision of Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and feel that there is an enormous disconnect between us here in a church building in Balmain and what's going on up there in heaven. I mean, you read Revelation 4 and 5 and it seems completely other, doesn't it? I mean, it's so different to what our world looks like down here. But the point of this vision is that there's not a disconnect. In fact, there's a very strong connection. The events in this world are controlled by the God who rules over all things in heaven and by the Lamb. God knows all that is going on down here on earth. There is nothing that escapes his attention. But more than that, he hears our prayers. In prayer, we have a direct line of communication to that throne room in heaven. We can often be tempted to feel that our prayers are a little bit ineffective or weak. I mean, you might find yourself sitting at Bible study or late at night when you're just about to go to bed and you, and you pray and you stop and you think to yourself, does God seriously hear this? I mean, does, he, does he honestly know what's going on in my life? Well, the answer is yes. And not only does he hear it, but your prayers, Revelation says, are a sweet-smelling fragrance before God. Our prayers make it all the way to the very presence of God. As as frail and feeble as they may look down here, they are a sweet-smelling fragrance when they reach heaven. And that should give us great confidence when we pray. And it should also give us cause to think about what it is that we are praying for. When you pray, your words are presented to God. So we need to think carefully about what we pray for. And we should treasure the privilege that we have of being able to come before God in prayer. We should take advantage of this privilege that we have of being able to speak to God, that he will hear what we have to say. That our prayers are among those prayers of the saints that are being presented as an offering to God. But the big picture here in Revelation is view from the tarmac or view from the tower. The seven churches who received this letter, they would have felt that life was just getting a little bit too chaotic from where they were standing. The persecution was starting, faith in Jesus was starting to mean trouble for those who wanted to continue to have faith in Jesus. But when you look to the throne room in heaven, everything's perfectly under control. And it's not just under control, the focus of all things is exactly where it should be. All eyes are on God and on Jesus. And all the other issues are then therefore put into their own place. And I'm sure that that's what we need to see from Revelation 4 and 5 as well, just as much as the original readers did, but but probably for different reasons. What caused these Christians to lose sight of reality that God is on the throne, what caused them to question that was the hardships and the sufferings that they were facing. And what is it that causes us to lose sight of the big picture? Well, let me give you three things. Busyness, affluence and apathy. They'll be the things that will cause us to lose sight of that throne room in heaven. 
and to become so consumed with what's going on in our lives that we think we're at the centre of all things and that all eyes should be on us. We can think that when we face those problems at work or we have those struggles within our family or we have to deal with that money situation or we're concerned about plans for the future or what the next career move is going to be. Those things can actually start to overwhelm us. But worse than that, they take the focus away from where it ought to be. We think that those things are the big reality, the important issues in life, and they're not. It's easy to get so caught up with what's going on in our own lives that we actually forget the whole big picture. But do you know what Revelation chapter 4 and 5 wants to do for us and for those original readers? It wants to take us by both shoulders and shake us and point us up to heaven and say, that is the reality. God is on the throne in heaven and he and the lamb are worthy to be praised because he created all things and because Jesus is the one who who has saved us and brought us into a relationship with God. Next time you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by what's going on, these are probably the two chapters of the Bible that you should read. This is what you need to be reminded of. That's the reality. How does that picture of Revelation 4 close? With absolutely everything in the whole of creation, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything under the earth, everything in the sea, all the living creatures, all the elders bowing down and worshipping God. That's where all eyes should be. That's where our world is heading. And that's where we need to keep looking.